0: Welcome to the Art Grind Podcast. This is a podcast run by artists, for artists, where we talk about what it means to be one. I'm Tun Myung, the producer with our host, Dina Brodsky and Marshall Jones. This is being recorded between our many jobs and side hustles. We bring you in-depth investigations into the lives of artists we admire and the stories behind the creative journey. So stay on the grind while we fill your mind.
1: Hello, our Grind listeners. Marshall Jones here with Dina Brodsky. And today we are interviewing for the second time. So nice we had to do it twice. Marina Granger.
2: Um, Marina Granger has worked in galleries for forever. And then she... Uh, founded her own business called The Artist Advisory, where she helps artists navigate the art world. And she's fantastic and she gives a lot of good advice. Marshall, did you walk away thinking like, God, I should go change the way that I behave professionally and like, you know, a bunch of easy ways?
1: I was full of despair this whole time, <laughs> needing to get my, uh, my life together. But no, I think this one was particularly interesting. I mean, I remember getting a lot out of the first one, but it was nice to hear her thoughts on the art world post-COVID and sort of just the health of the art market and how strategies are changing in order to kind of insert yourself into that. And we talked about living in New York versus living somewhere else and um, our gallery's thriving and all that stuff. is a lot of stuff that was really uh, helpful information for me to hear, so.
2: Yeah, no, and and a lot of the stuff I walked away with is like, okay, I'm gonna go change a bunch of stuff, but it's all, she makes it all seem really, really manageable rather than, you know, unmanageable, which is what it is in my head.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Totally, yeah. totally like, felt manageable. And- yeah,
2: like, like she's warm, she's clear-headed, uh, you know, like like she gives good advice. So, yeah, enjoy it.
1: All right, talk to you guys later. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Art Grind podcast. I'm host Marshall Jones here with Dina Brodsky, and today we have recurring guest, A lot's changed since the last time you were here, Marina Granger. Marina, how you doing?
3: I'm so good. Thank you so much for having me back on this podcast. It's so cool to be here. Thank you.
1: Yeah, well, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah,
2: Marina, the last time we talked to you, we talked to you on this podcast, it was... 2019, it was before COVID, the world was a very different place. We were recording in Marshall's living room. So can you talk a little bit about what's happened since?
3: Well, first of all, I got to say
2: how surreal it
3: is to see you both on Zoom compared to the last time I saw you together in Marshall's living room back in 2019. I feel like I saw so much more art in person, (laughs) and right? And it was so cool to like see Marshall's work too in person uh, there. And, you know, so much has changed in the sense that we're doing more and more and more online, just like this podcast right here.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I used to go to so many more shows before that. I don't even think we knew what Zoom was at that point. (laughs) No. So do you feel like, I guess I have a whole series of questions around this topic, but do you feel like, well, we're depending on your expertise in these fields. Do you feel like um, art has gone more online, more on Instagram, less in the galleries, less in person? Is is that what you're noticing out there?
3: You know, I... You would think I would say yes, right? But I feel like there's still so much happening in person. Just the big, big difference is that the online part of the art world plays such a bigger role than it did. I think last time I was on this podcast, which again was pre pandemic. I explained to you that I started my business, which helps artists navigate the art world because I realized that the internet was this great democratizer of the art world. All of a sudden artists could get in front of anyone and everyone, but so much has changed in our world even since then. So I'm so glad I did that. First of all, is to you know, to start this business and start to help artists with their online presence, with their in-person presence, right. And all of that. But now what I see happening a lot is we get introduced to a lot of work online and then we see it in person. This is so it was happening a little bit, you know, like 10 years ago when like Facebook was a thing, five, you know, yeah, like five years ago when Instagram was a thing, but now it feels like I'm discovering, I'm personally, I feel like I'm discovering artists all the time online or through the media somehow, as opposed to going to galleries hmm. and like finding artists that way. So, in that way, I think it's really important for artists to be very clear with how they present their work online.
1: Mm. Yeah. A few things come to mind when you say that, like, I remember coming up and being an artist was almost synonymous with living in New York. Like it, it might sound a little elitist to say that, but it did really feel like there was, you needed to be a part of that in order to, See where you were within it. And now it feels like you could you could live anywhere and just make paintings and so many people can see them. That's a whole different thing. Would you would you suggest people moving to big cities? Is that still a factor, or is it more feasible just to do it on your own somewhere?
3: Ah, that's such a good question because I gotta say. It's so exciting for me to discover other geographical areas via art. So in other words, if there's an artist who's making work about that has something to do with where they live and it's some place that I've never been to or someplace that's maybe rural, it's so exciting to learn about that, right? But, um, you know, I think what you're really asking is like, if you move to New York, is it going to be like easier for you in your career? Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I almost think that it's, there are pros and cons to both things you know if you're an artist that lives in a smaller town and outside of this big cosmopolitan area right or any big cosmopolitan area you can really become this like big fish in a small pond
1: mm-hmm. and
3: then take your work to larger areas. Um, There's an example of this. So I was, um, I have a friend who's a gallerist and he found this artist who is from a small town in Australia. He was really into her work and he's a gallerist in New York and he's not like a huge gallerist, right? But what he did was he found out about her because she was this like big fish in a small pond, so to speak. And he ended up taking a chance on her, giving her a solo show in New York, flying her out and setting her up to live in New York city for six months to see like what's happening there. Right. So there's that Uh pro to it, right. (laughs) To not being in New York, because you could really expand your reach. Um, And then of course it's, There is this other flip side of this, right? There's the possibility that shipping will be a big issue, right? Uh However, in my experience working with galleries and with artists, it's rarely ever an issue. I feel like a lot of artists think like if I don't move to New York or a big city, a gallery there will never show my work because the shipping cost is so astronomical, Uh And that's absolutely not true. There are certain things that the gallery can do. They could have you come out and make work there, essentially in a sort of a residency, or they will ship the work. And it's not a big deal for them to spend a few thousand dollars on shipping, right? If they really want you to have the show. Um, Although oftentimes galleries will want you to pay for the shipping to the gallery and oh. if that's those funds are unavailable to you, you can always negotiate with the gallery and see if they would front you the cost of the shipping and take it out of your first sale.
0: Oh.
3: So anyway, so those are my thoughts around like not living in New York and of course like living in New York or LA or London, Paris, whatever. It's so fun because you would actually be able to go out, go to openings and build these relationships with uh, artists who are going to introduce you to curators and gallerists and all the whole ecosystem. So that's really fun. But I don't think it's that necessary in the digital age.
2: Mm.
1: That's a, yeah, that's the I guess that's the heart of that. My question to that idea um, did your friend, the gallerist, he, he would have found that artist on social media, right? Or something. Like oh,
3: that. oh my gosh. <laughs> yes. Yes. He found her in social media. Correct.
1: So it, yeah. it really, I mean, it really is changing rapidly. I mean, from what you're saying, it sounds like the industry is still in these bigger cities. Like they're, they're still like that vortex where people go to buy art and assemble and talk about art and stuff, but it feels... I mean, I don't know. It always felt like um, a career aspiration for me to sort of live in New York for a while, make those connections, do the school and all that. And then at some point, like a ton of artists go out to like New Mexico or whatever, and (laughs) make your work and not have to deal with the city anymore. And it sounds like. A new, a younger generation is just skirting that whole, <laughs> the, the whole new year. Well,
3: you know, that said, Marshall, there's an incredible art scene in New Mexico.
1: I know, I know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I just picked New Mexico because I love I love it. But I, I was meaning sort of out in the wilderness, you yeah. know?
3: Wilderness. I mean, I don't know. I think about this. I also... I'm conscious when I go to look at gallery shows in New York and I'm like, where's this artist from? Where do they live? And I feel like, you know, I, I didn't do like full, like research on this with like, um, you know, a control group or whatever. Right. But I can tell you that it feels like it's 50, 50, like some artists live in New York like it's fifty percent feels like they live in
2: New York, and the other artists are from anywhere else. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, for all it's worth. So, there's only two times in my life where I've been like ahead of the social curve. Uh, what, Um, where I, you know, uh, and one of them was Game of Thrones. I became obsessed with the Game of Thrones books way before they became a phenomenon. But the other one was I left New York right before COVID, and so I discovered I I discovered Zoom much earlier than everyone else, just because I needed to sort of, I needed to keep teaching and keep consulting and doing all of these things that were actually kind of New York based while not living there. Um, and then the rest of the world was there too. So um, that um, so for a while I just pretended that I kept. Living in New York uh while well, well, not being there. Um, and right now it's been a few years. I come in like once a month. Marina, sometimes I see you for a cocktail. Um, I don't feel like career-wise, I've been impacted, you know, like like that much. It's like you can teach from anywhere and you can connect with galleries from anywhere. That being said, I feel like more magic happens in like a day of wandering around New York and meeting people in, in real life and you know having conversations in galleries um then happens in like a month of being in a lot of other places so i'm not sure if it's necessary but it's magical right totally magical but i wonder if it's because you're also
3: like you are coming into the city with the intention to uh do whatever you wanted you, you have in mind. And so you're super focused and you're actually going out. Like I live in New York city and there are days when I don't leave my five block radius.
1: You know, I totally agree with that because Dina, Dina's brought that up to me before. it's like, yeah, because you're not like exhausted on the subway waiting to get a slice of pizza somewhere. It's like, it's a totally different.
2: Yes. I find, I find it, I find it charming, right? I think it's <laughs> great. You know, I'm like, oh, the subway and how overcrowded and dirty. And there's, you know, the, like the, uh, but also kind of beautiful lot it all is. And that line for the pizza, it's amazing, but I, you're right. I wouldn't feel that way if I lived there. So I, I have another
1: question too about big shows like armory shows and just sort of like before the pandemic, those felt, in my opinion, pretty pretty hot and thriving. And there was just a that top dollar art was going for a lot. Are is that is that still an aspiration for people? Is that still thriving? What what are you seeing at those bigger shows?
3: Well, I got to say, I love going to those bigger shows for so many reasons. And I want to say also, like, if you're really looking for good art market report, I, I hate to like plug another podcast, but you know, who does it every year is art. The art, they do a wonderful art market report. And I got to say, Just like I went to the armory in September, I went to and I don't know when this podcast is going to come out. I'm going to go to the Miami art fairs um, in December 2023 and I've been going to Miami for the art fairs for so long and I feel like the big ticket items are still selling. Mm. Like huh. a lot, like, I mean, the seven figure artworks are selling, the six figure, high six figure artworks are selling. Um, I remember walking into, I can't even like remember who they were showing, but I walked into like David Werner's booth, I think at Freeze last, you know, in May. And I was there on like the third day of the fair and everything was sold out and they had paintings that were over
0: 250,000 above
3: so it's still happening (laughs) but you know the reason what
1: Still happening, (laughs) all the downward and everything. That's surprising. It's
3: still happening, but you know there are nuances to it, of course, and there are different collectors for different types of art. You know, there are going to be. There's one type of collector for emerging art. There's another type of collector that's buying uh, secondary market work, so works that are resold for you know millions sometimes, if not hundreds of thousands, and there are. Other collectors that buy mid-career work, that's in like the, I would say, just to give you a really rough estimate, and of course, there's going to be exceptions to all of these estimates, right? But anything from like 50 000 to 150,000, those types of collectors are probably, I think over the past few years, have been fewer, um, not fewer, but they have been buying supposedly buying less, right? This is what I keep hearing from these art market reports because they're the ones who are truly affected by the fluctuation in our economy. Whereas the people in, I guess, the top 10% (laughs) or 1%, right? Um, Are not as affected.
1: That makes sense. That makes sense. I think a lot of our audience... And i was sure there's a, a good bit of overlap with your clientele as well. Um, what Wouldn't it even necessarily be in that $50,000 range? You know, like the people who are listening to this are more emerging, um, you mm-hmm. know, selling paintings in like a couple of thousand dollar range, small ones, $800 range, just kind of that. Would you say that that you feel that there's, a pretty good infrastructure for that, that sort of artist right now?
2: The
3: artist that's selling for how much?
1: A couple of thousand oh. or I, mean, I know even like Instagram artists, plenty that I know there's like yeah. 400 bucks, you know, that kind of, that kind of range.
3: You know, I, I don't know. I think there is because the artists that I work with are in that range and they tend to do really well with and without galleries. Uh, and there are it, it when it comes to galleries selling in that price range, I have a really interesting like energetic <laughs> vibe uh, analysis that I want to share with you. Good. So I, Um, So you guys, so I'm also a Reiki master. I don't know if you know this about me. I I, I
1: did not know that. I I,
3: I totally did. (laughs) Okay, cool. So um, I'm really into energy because I think it really affects how, um, you know, it affects our thoughts, which affects our actions and essentially affects the result of everything. Mm. And what I have been seeing lately is I've been seeing uh, that there are some galleries who are kind of starting out and maybe they're not quite like there are some galleries that are starting out that are doing well, like they're going to art fairs, they're selling work in that few thousand dollar range consistently and they're building a collector base but then there are some galleries that you know I'll talk to the gallerists and they're just convinced that it's not going to happen they're like it's just such a hard time right now it's not going to happen no one's buying right and it's almost like they give up energetically before There's even a chance to sell the work.
1: Mm. And I
3: think that that has a lot to do with whether or not the work is going to sell. So, to the artist listening, (laughs) you know, when you're choosing which gallery to work with, and I'm also, you know, underlying the word choosing, because you can choose. You don't have to jump at like the first gallery that comes to you. What you want to do is make sure that. They believe they can sell your work and they're not saying to you, Oh, it's such a hard time. They could say something like, well, some people think it's a hard time or have been saying it's a hard time, but I've been selling really well. That's okay. But this is a big, big part of it, right? Because a lot of it has to do with the beliefs of the gallerist because they're convincing someone to buy your work, right? And if they don't think it's, you know, if they think that times are hard and that person spending $2,000 is gonna have a really hard time after they spend the $2,000 on your painting, eh, that's not great. (laughs) So that I have to tell you. And the other thing is, when you're choosing a gallery to work with, I really advise you to, and many galleries will do this anyway, they will take some work on consignment from you, maybe put it in a group show or shop it to their collectors and make sure that they can sell it before they give you a solo show because you want to make sure that they can sell your work before you put an entire solo show out there. And what if they don't have the collectors for your work?
1: Mm. And, and it's, it's sort of like a, I don't know if, if you're going to a store and they sell shoes at that store, you wouldn't, you wouldn't try to sell a bunch of, I don't know, cars there or something like the gallery. exactly <laughs> Right. Yeah.
3: Oh my gosh, Marshall. And I love that you said shoes because I have this crazy uh, shoe store analogy that I tell everyone that I work with. And I think I, I mean, like if you've listened to my podcast or anything, I probably talk about it all the time, but I always say like, you know how you can walk into a shoe store in like, I don't know, like a big box store, like Kmart, Target, Walmart, like the shoe department. Mm -hmm. And there's like a bunch of shoes all over the place. Yes. And you know, you're like, okay, I can buy like five of these $20 pairs or whatever. I don't know. And then you walk into like a fancy shoe store and there's like one shoe on a pedestal. And you're like, okay, well, I could totally find myself spending $500 on this shoe, right? I don't know. I mean, who knows? Some people like to spend a lot of money on shoes. But I always use that analogy for how you present your work because You want to get the vibe of the single shoe on a pedestal.
1: Ah, okay.
3: So your work comes off as like super, I mean it it is, but you know, you underline its value, its uniqueness, and its luxury. So that when you say, Hey, this painting is ten thousand dollars or whatever, it's like, well, duh, it is. <laughs>
1: and that's,
2: so, that's yeah. be, I love be, my shoe be, store analogy.
3: Shoe.
1: that's great.
2: <laughs> I, I like it. Yeah, be the luxury shoe. <laughs> be the luxury shoe. You know, as as you're saying that, Marina, my mind goes back to the last studio visit I did with a gallery not that long ago, and I the gallery was great, but I brought in a backpack full of, you know, um, stuff and like folders and sketchbooks and like drawings that were falling out from all over the place. And I was like, oh no, I was the other shoe store. I wasn't the luxury shoe store. (laughs) (laughs) I know, be the luxury shoe.
3: (laughs) Take my free masterclass on how to be the luxury shoe. Um, No, just kidding.
2: um, And and don't, and don't carry your work around in like a camping backpack. Is that the (laughs)
3: Yeah. I mean, I always think I, I remember, you know, working in galleries. So I worked in galleries for like 15 years before I started my business in 2018. And one of the galleries where I worked the longest, we sold artwork that ranged between like, I don't know, we had stuff under 10,000, but the average price point was like 50 to 75,000. And I thought that it was so wonderful that what we did when we would present the work to potential collectors or recurring collectors, we would put on these, like, white cotton gloves and bring it out, even though it was, like, in a frame or you could just, like, you know, hold it by the lip or whatever, right? we still wore those gloves because it gave that luxury shoe store feeling you know so I wonder because you're like a miniaturist have you ever considered having like little cotton gloves and you know having them
2: in like some sort of like elaborate little box I don't know you know Marina so you're you're totally right about this right whereas instead i'm like ah they're on copper is they're really hard to damage let me just you know the the um like what can really go wrong and i think physically probably nothing uh but um is it, but as uh, like like as far as the luxury shoe analogy i'm i'm failing here <laughs> um so uh for everyone who's listening you should listen to marina she's given me some of the best art world advice like just just over the last however many years that i've known you that, but yeah. speaking, speaking of your art world advice. So um, where were you like, you know, like, like, I feel like over the last few years since your last art grind episode, right, so much has changed. And a lot of a lot of like major changes sort of like figuring out what goes what stays and what comes next. And so what was it for you? Like, what, what, you know, like, like, like where were you in 2019? And where are you now? Because those are two very different places.
3: Oh, wow. What a great question. I'm like walking down memory lane. Um. Well, look in 2019, I was really just starting my business and I was really, and I still am very much fueled by this feeling that I got when I was working in galleries and I was like, I just I don't I there's no other way to say it. And I feel like I say this over and over again, but I really hated seeing artists get the runaround, like, and not get the right answers. So when I first started this business, what I did was I would meet with artists in person. Like we would have an in-person session. Right. And as I've come to grow um my business and with COVID hitting, like first it came, it became Zoom sessions all the time, right? And now I feel like everybody's on their own time schedule, right? Like this is the big thing that I think COVID has changed so much or like the pandemic or whatever. Um, and people need to have Their own schedule. Like, I feel like I have so much more desire for time freedom. And I feel like artists, if anyone out there needs time freedom, it's artists. Because when you are in the mood (laughs) to make the work, you need that freedom to do it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I started to really honor that in the way that I've been working with artists. And so I have done everything I could to make it a possibility for artists that I work with to do what they need to do on their own time. So I have created a program that's completely pre-recorded. I used to have a program called the Artist Academy, which I would teach live. And now it's pre-recorded and people can do it at their own leisure, right? And so that's one of the things that has really changed for me is figuring out how to anticipate everything, so that you can't like everyone can do it on their own time and just like adjusting to time autonomy. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question.
2: Um, some of it we'll talk a little bit about. You know the um what um what the artist advisory does. So. So, well,
3: um, okay. I'm like, what do I do? Huh? A little (laughs) bit of everything. And, you know, I always thought it was a really good sign of uh, being in the right business when I would like think about, well, how do I describe my business to anyone? (laughs) I can't. No. Well, ultimately the artist advisory, which is my business helps artists navigate the art world by learning how to brand and market themselves, right? Which sounds really clinical, but ultimately what it does is I have learned how to, over the years, after working with artists for five years, like I've had this business for five years now, I've learned how to help artists hone in on their intention, identify it, communicate it, and communicated in the way that they present their work so that they get in front of the right people. And so everything I do, when it comes down to my podcast, when it comes down to my offers, and I have a wonderful masterclass that you can watch for free on how you can present your work and get in front of the right people. Hmm. Everything boils down to that. And I just want to tell you three steps to doing that, right? Three steps to getting in front of the right people since, you know, we're all here today. We're all listening. You might be driving, you might be in your studio. So I want you to take in this info because it seems kind of simple, but it's really moved mountains for people that I've worked with. So, First thing is to identify your intention and communicate it. So that is something I call an elevator pitch, like having an elevator pitch, which is why you do what you do, how your perspective informs the work, and then what you do. Many artists right off the bat, what they do is they say something like, well, I'm a realist painter and I paint landscapes, right? And then what's the, it's great that you do that, but that's the the issue there is that sometimes when you introduce yourself that way or your work, the first thing that will pop into someone's mind is the last landscape realist painter that they can think of right? They're going to suddenly imagine what your work looks like without even knowing anything about it. Mm -hmm. And they won't be able to repeat your story to others. And humans are natural storytellers. We love to talk about what we learned, who we met, right? So how do you tell a story about your work is with this elevator pitch, which can take you less than one minute to say, right? But it might take you a long time to uh, get to some points of it. But I'm going to tell you, just start with what you know. You can edit it. But instead of saying like, well, I'm a realist landscape painter, (laughs) right? You could say something like, "Uh, well, I'm really interested in The way that landscapes sometimes mimic uh, the city skyline. I grew up in Brooklyn, and I would always go to my rooftop and watch the sunset, and I saw the sunset over the skyline of Manhattan, and I noticed all the intricacies in the buildings. But when I first started going hiking upstate, I realized that the trees were very similar to like all the different heights of the trees were similar to the skyline. And so now I paint these landscapes of upstate New York or wherever, right? That remind me of the city skyline, right? So now you have this story ingrained in you about the artist, their work, and all of that, right? And, you know, I just made that up, so I hope it was coherent. But, um, you know, it's such an easy way to repeat that, right? So that's step one. And step two- So it's a
1: way before step two. It's it's like a way that you're sticking in people's minds, right? So they could- and so in a way you're you're differentiating yourself from all the shoes at at TJ Maxx
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: spray of the same shoes and you're like, oh, that's that's the one I remember because yeah, it has a story with emotion tied to it and and a little backstory and passion and all these things. And I know for myself, I'm always quick to like downplay, you know, and just be like, Oh, I just sort of paint a little bit, you know, like that kind of thing. And then you want to walk away pretty quick and it's hard to, it's hard to convince yourself to develop that. Okay. Step
0: two.
3: All right. Well, so now you've got step one. So step two is communicating your elevator pitch everywhere. So okay. you create a tagline on your Instagram bio that, gives you a little bit of context for what we're looking at right or your social media bio or whatever it is um so maybe something like uh painting painting nature skyline you know (laughs) like something like that if that was your thing that you did um and then you would really gear your presentation on your website to show that off. So how are you presenting the homepage of your site? Maybe there's a video that shows you working if you have some sort of like special technique or you have like really cool textural stuff going on, right? Um, Maybe it's, um, it's a, An installation image of your work of like all these paintings of nature, but then there's a window between them and we see the skyline out the window. I don't know. I mean, I'm really (laughs) going there, right? So real the second step is communicating this intention. And the third step, this is the most critical. It's figuring out how to get in front of the right people. And this is going to be really, it's Like, way simpler than you think, right? So, the right people are going to be those people who are interested in your work. They could be the media, like the press, who are like writers, right? They could be gallerists, they could be curators, they could be collectors, whoever you can think of that's interested in your work. And here's the thing the right people always listen to a voice of authority. They either read something, they either hear it from someone, right? Like, if you think about it, Marshall, the voice of authority between you and me is Dina. <laughs> like, Dina, yeah, like, because Dina was like, hey, we okay. should trust Marina. <laughs> and you're like, okay, cool. Like, let's have her on the podcast and talk about shoes, I guess. And <laughs>
2: That's exactly, that is exactly how it went down. Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. And uh, so here we are. But you guys are my voice of authority because you're amplifying me to your audience, right? Hmm. So the key here is to, and you know my story, right? So, and it was easy for you to have me on because you know my story. So the same thing for the artists listening, somebody will know your story They have an audience, whether it's five people or 5,000 people, right, that will resonate with your story, and that's how you get your work out there, and an example of that could be you're very clear with your elevator pitch and your message, and you share it on Instagram, and an artist sees it they have a studio visit with someone who's like a curator who's doing a group show that has something to do with city skylines and they mention your work right that's a really like obvious like simple thing that can happen or you are actively reaching out to the press that writes about city skyline paintings, I don't know, (laughs) like American art collector or something, right? And they put you in the cityscapes edition, but you have paintings of nature, and that's cool, right? For people to see, you know. Um, So I hope that wasn't too confusing.
1: No, that Uh, makes sense. It makes me think of how, you know, I, I could see your role being so important in that. To help people with pitches and things like, do you do you find that artists talk, speak well about their work generally? Do they do they have a reason that they're doing it?
2: <laughs> do you- I
3: find that you know a lot of the time people are afraid to share the reason why they're doing it. Hmm. They're like, no, I don't want to be too vulnerable, or maybe that's not the thing. Or sometimes, uh, there are artists who you know, get into this meditative state and they create the work and it just flows out of them. So it's really difficult for them to put it into words. And so I have a program called the Artist Academy where artists learn how to create this elevator pitch. Like they go through this whole, um, figuring out what their intention is. I really guide them through it. And the program is completely pre-recorded, right? So they can do it in their own time. Uh, And there is access to me inside the program as well. So I can help them finesse things. But one thing I got to say is program or not, What you can do is really answer those questions for yourself honestly and just put it together into one sentence. It doesn't have to be perfect and see how it feels. And don't overthink it because a lot of the time artists are like, well, no, and it's got to be an analogy. It's got to, you know, like you kind of want, you and not just artists, people, like I overthink things all the time. So <laughs> that's why I'm giving you that advice. Don't overthink it. Yeah. How, how important
1: do you think an artist work is? Because I mean, quality of the work is subjective for sure. And you, it's like a, you look at the art world, you look at Instagram and it really does feel like there's a place for almost anyone out there. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you, is there like, is there a certain type of work that you think that would just completely limit your opportunities for a life in in the arts, or do you think you, anybody can kind of pull it together and make a career out of this? <laughs> That's what? I...
3: You know, I think anything is possible. I think there are going to be, there's some ways that some things that can be a little bit more difficult for some type of artworks and vice versa. Like for example, if you have works that are very political, it's going to be really challenging for you to uh, get out there on Instagram because Instagram might, kind of like suppress some political posts but lately I don't know I've been seeing a lot of political posts so maybe that's not true Dina like what do you think
2: (laughs) um you know I I I would avoid political anything actually gotcha all right so what she said and (laughs) back to shoes Okay, um, yeah, 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 let's let's stick to the really clear shoe analogy instead of the progressively more muddy political. <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: So we were talking about marketability for certain types of artwork. You had said, obviously, political, something that won't sell oh, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you have expertise in these areas. So like, if you see, I don't know, uh... Uh, Like the landscape painting you were describing, like a landscape painting traditionally, does that feel terribly marketable to you?
3: Yeah, because there's a great market for people who love landscape painting, right? There's a huge market for it. And I think that you have to, like, I just want to reframe our thoughts about marketability because oftentimes we just fall into this pattern of like, ah, there's like so much art out there and I'm one of a million and da, da 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 right? Uh, just in the U.S. alone, we have, I looked up the statistic and I want to say like, you don't have to be a millionaire to buy art, but in the U.S. alone, we have over 20 millionaire uh 20 million millionaires
1: wow wow that's crazy
3: right we always think about like the one percent it's like those nine people or whatever right (laughs) or yeah like just Jeff Bezos but no no no. (laughs) there's literally like 20 million millionaires in the U.S. right so I just want to and they have homes (laughs) where that, that have that need art in them Right.
1: But like, but like a say a figurative painting, a nude figurative painting would be less marketable to those people, right? Just sort of like decor and kind of etiquette. It feels like the the it's those also,
3: you know, when it comes to nudes, nude paintings, it's all about the marketability too, uh-huh. because you want to explain why you're doing nudes, right? There was this Paint. one artist that I worked with and you know he this really gave me an idea for the elevator pitch because I found myself um you know I was representing his work and then like uh at art fairs would always say this over and over again because people were like oh well like what's with this painting and I would you know they saw they were interested so what's the next step right And so the next step was to deliver this elevator pitch. And instead of saying like, oh yeah, they're just nudes. (laughs) It was all like, oh, well, this artist is so interested in human anatomy. He actually went to medical school and just before his final exam realized, you know what? My favorite thing in the world is studying human anatomy. So now I'm just going, I'm going to be painting the most real depictions of the human body.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah.
3: So, again, that marketability, like you're thinking to, you know, the masses, it might feel, you know, kind of weird to just market a nude. But with that whole pitch, it's suddenly so marketable to anyone who's working in healthcare or interested in anatomy or anyone who wants to hear that story or repeat that story at their cocktail party at their house, you know?
1: Yeah. So- it's, it's almost like a, a, a whole package or a gestalt or something. It's like you, <clears throat> because I think even in big art history, like Van Gogh wouldn't be Van Gogh unless he sort of like cut off his ear and never sold a painting. And his brother, it's like, it, it, what you're saying really resounds even on a huge level because we're more invested in the story. Oftentimes when we go to museums and just the artwork, you know, and can you, can you become a bit of a story? Can you have that? That's, That's an interesting idea.
3: So one thing I wanted to say about that is that in museums, you always hear this elevator pitch, right? Like, they always tell you about the artist that way mm-hmm. and it's in the museum text. And I also studied museum studies, which is basically, you know, uh, on the graduate level, which is 90% of that is all about how to make it logistically easy for people to go into a museum. <laughs> um, Cause by the time you actually see the artwork uh, it's, it's been like an hour <laughs> right through the whole process. But Um, another big part of that is writing wall text for the intelligent, but uninformed viewer. And a lot of the time you're going from the academic world, like getting your MFA or whatever, to being in front of the intelligent, but uninformed viewer, who is your potential collector. Right. Mm -hmm. So in the academic world, you're taught, Hey, don't say anything about your perspective. It doesn't matter. (laughs) Right. (laughs) <laughs> and in for the intelligent but uninformed viewer, the your perspective is what makes the whole thing. So when you go into the museums, you suddenly start to see a focus on the artist's perspective. And there's another um like historiographic explanation for this but that would be academic so I don't want to go into that but like yeah it's the one thing that really separates people it it really sets uh people up for being a museum level artist
2: Hmm.
3: I think
1: and it's it is interesting like it's I'm happy that there's spaces like big space, like you say, that academic clinical nature of everything, because I think at heart, me coming at it from an artist angle is you are just telling your story on a canvas anyway. And it's sort of like you want, you want to communicate on that level. And I, I've always thought like a lot of artists are hard on the text, like the image should Be everything you know. Like, why do we always got to read this text? You'll hear that in art schools a lot, but it's like, I do think it's very important. I think it does come back and inform me all the time when I read about someone's life and what they went through to create it.
2: Um, I don't know. Only if you like the image, though, right? Like, so, so if I like if I like a painting, I want to know everything about the artist, right? And I want to know, like, I want to know their story. If I don't like the painting, then I feel like their story doesn't actually, you know, like, 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 the story might be a good one, but if I don't care about it visually, I don't actually want to read about it either. I I, I don't know. Does that sound too harsher? <laughs> I, think,
1: I think that's a great distinction, but, de- but devil's advocate, even though I agree with your distinction the whole way, but I think we've interviewed people here, Dina, that maybe we weren't as excited as their work. And then you hear them talk about it and listen to them for an hour and you're like, their work's great. You know, you just
2: Marshall. I've done. I, I like. We only invite people whose work we like. You, know?
1: <laughs> you yeah. can't like everyone's work equally.
2: Um, <laughs> no, but I, no, but like, I don't know. Like, would you invite a guest whose work you really hated?
1: No, I wouldn't say we've done that, but I, I will say that it definitely, hearing their story elevates the work
2: always. Um Yes, and actually, in like walking through a museum um the artists whose life you know a lot about I do feel like you kind of appreciate it like I think we're just we're storytelling creatures like we I don't know part of our brain is still sitting around that fire in the cave um you know like like after hunting a mammoth or something Mm -hmm. um and like you know listening to people sort of tell you know like tell the story of like what went on inside or outside their head Mm
3: -hmm. Yeah, some of us are talking and others are actually uh, drawing on the wall of the cave. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, someone's trying to sell the cave wall, like, hey, that's pretty
3: good. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you should okay. see the cave wall.
2: <laughs> okay, do, you think, do you think those were different people, though? Is the ones sitting around the fire telling the story and the ones drawing, you know, the like like drawing on the wall of the cave? Or was it the same Zina, that question, I could like,
3: I love that, that question so much. Is that a- no, no, no. I think it's so wonderful because it, there are vestigial parts of us that are still those people that are sitting around the fire, you know, hunter and gatherer kind of like society, you know, back in that time, what our, our psychology was so different But there's a vestige of that in our psychology today that really affects the way we do things. And that is we would always prepare for the worst case scenario because we were like, well, if we prepare for the worst case scenario, then we won't die of famine or, you know, drought or whatever. Right. But then there's also, so that's one thing we think of the worst case scenario by default. And that's not great. And then the other thing, so I always say like, if you're going to think of the worst case scenario, just like balance it out and think of the best case scenario. But the one thing that really affects artists from that, like psychological vibe from the past is back then, if we didn't have community we would literally, like, if you were shunned from your cave, (laughs) you would have no shelter, no food, you would probably die. Mm. So, that was, so, as a vestige, we equate rejection with death. (laughs) (laughs) And, um, you know, we're laughing about it now, but thousands of years ago, it wasn't a joke, like, it would really be a problem. And so, When you really think about it, when you think about, like, rejection and competition and storytelling, too, right? Because storytelling is still with us, right? That was really your question. Yeah, storytelling is totally with us. But there's adjustments that we have to make in our society, like, compared to back then, we're living in the lap of luxury, right?
2: So I agree, but like I'm not sure how different our psychology is from like, you know, from from the people telling stories at the fire. Because I think so you're right. I think compared there's much less of a chance of like a sable-tooth tiger eating us. There's, you know, there's there's a lot more food. Um, but I think we still ultimately like we want to love and be loved and we're scared of rejection. Um yeah. and and we want to hear stories like the Yes, yeah. Well,
3: yes. Uh absolutely. I that's exactly it. Except, you know, one thing, just side note, don't worry about rejection so much. <laughs> You're not uh, gonna get eaten by a sable tooth tiger if you don't get accepted into an exhibition. <laughs>
2: You know, or maybe worry about rejection that's by the people you love and that you actually want. You know, like where it would actually matter, rather than yeah, yeah. where the stakes, comparatively speaking, right? Like, yeah. like, like the gallery you apply to that maybe rejected you. That's that's not a loved one. That's not a you know, like the yeah. like it's just a rejection, right? So. It's just a rejection. You still have your cave and your shelter
3: and your wall drawings.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and and you're fire with the stories. So. Yes, and you're fire
3: with the stories. Oh my gosh, what so much analogy today? I know, I, poets
2: I, <laughs> like the- <laughs> so. Oh, Marina, God. if you
1: could boil down, like, because you see so much art, and you you have a good feel for quality art, good art, like art that that has a chance to sustain someone's life. Because I think that's basically what we're looking for. Most of the listeners of this show, most of your clients are, are looking for, I think their intentions are kind of humble just to make a life out of this, you know? And, and if you've, if you could think of the images you've seen, not specific, but just like an overall theme of something that really resounds with you, that feels like quality, that feels like it has a, a shot at this. What what would some of those qualities be?
3: gosh, Marshall! Here comes another long winded answer from me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Great question.
1: In a, in an analogy.
3: <laughs> All right, let's talk about uh, something else now. Um, but here's the thing. I think that first and foremost, any subject matter is going to be. A hit if it's delivered with confidence in the technique mm. and that confidence in the technique has to be channeled from the actual confidence that the artist has mm. because when you have that confidence you have clarity and you have a way of communicating your work right. That really resonates. So that's first and foremost, but when it comes to, you know, like, how do you make this sustainable? Like, how do you make this a career? How do you make sure that you're not making work? That's just like never going to (laughs) sell. Right. There's always going to be an audience for something. Hmm. Right. And one way to think about it, and I'm actually developing a shorter course on this but I don't know if you guys I feel like a lot of your listeners are from like the academic art world too so maybe you've read this really really boring book called The uh, Principles of Art History by Heinrich Wolflin do you know that book
1: I know it I have not read it but I I know
3: don't read it it's got a Wikipedia page anyway (laughs) so Uh, This book is something that um, was written back in like 1924, 28, something like that. And it was the basis for formal analysis of artwork going forward in the 20th century for art historians. Because it listed five qualities in artwork, one of which is very easy to describe painterly versus linear, right? We all know how to identify that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also like multiplicity versus unity, um, relative clarity versus absolute clarity. I mean, there's like, it, it's it, that doesn't matter. A good example to look at is painterly versus linear. And multiplicity versus unity
0: okay
3: what i've noticed is that galleries whether they're conscious of it or not they so the way that the ecosystem works is they have a list of collectors that they advertise the artwork to that's in their gallery And generally speaking, the collectors come to them because they expect a certain type of artwork from that gallery. If it's a niche gallery that, for example, specializes in uh, artists from Latin America, then that's what they expect. But many galleries are not niche galleries. And the owners and directors of that gallery tend to pick things that they think their collectors will respond to visually, right? And so when they pick these things, they either consciously or subconsciously look at some of these principles, especially painterly versus linear, multiplicity versus uh, unity, open form versus closed form, And so what I invite you to do, and when you're looking to see like, hey, is this a gallery I could work with, right? Because you want to find a gallery you can work with. And also in our day and age, like you could also probably have a really great career without a gallery, (laughs) right? But if you're looking for a gallery, and like the more traditional route, you would look to see on their list of artists, or sometimes it's easier to look by their list of exhibitions to analyze, do they have 90% painterly work and 10% linear work? Then maybe if your work is painterly and it fits, you know, and, and it's open form and they tend to have open form work as well, then it would be a really good fit. Right. The other thing, um, The caveat to that is you also want to go to the gallery social media page to see what they're really promoting, because maybe they're looking to cross over to show more linear work or something like that. So if they have 10% linear work, 90% painterly, and they're posting only their linear work on social media, and it's all different artists, it's not just because there's an exhibition, then maybe you're thinking, well, if I have linear work, I should reach out to them and say, Hey, you know, I love your, you know, I love your gallery. And there's a whole way of organically reaching out to a gallery. I don't suggest that you cold email galleries, but I think that finding the right galleries for you, that's one way to do it. And I think that as long as you have the confidence And as long as you find your people, right, then you've got a recipe for success.
2: Um, Marina, thank you so much. How, you know, in case someone happened to want to study with you, um, how would they do that? So the best thing to do is to start with my free masterclass,
3: which you can watch at theartistadvisory.com. or I'm sure you will have a link in the show notes to my website. Um, and you can also tune into my podcast. I always talk about so many cool things that I'm doing. I like to interview artists, gallerists, curators to sort of lift the veil on the art world uh, that podcast is the Artist Advisory Hotline podcast. And also follow me on Instagram at the underscore artist underscore advisory.
2: Mm. Marina, thank you, thank you so much for like doing this. And by the way, which um you said you were going to an opening tonight. Which opening? Oh, I'm going actually to an opening um
3: at Trotter and Scholer Gallery on the Lower East Side. And this is an artist uh, is in a two person show there. And she completed my program and met this gallerist, you know, did the whole thing and now she has a show. So I got to go give her a high five.
1: (laughs) A real testimonial on that. That's good.
3: (laughs) It's a real testimonial, but you know, I, you know, that's the thing about these testimonials. It's like, sure like I guess my program helped them but it's their artwork and they did it like it's it's more what they're doing too like I'm just pivoting them a little bit I'm like
2: hey go in this direction or whatever I feel like you never change anyone um you kind of like tweak them that's like, why I
3: have so much resistance to Marshall's question about <laughs> what artwork is going to be successful <laughs> I'm like
2: all of it Marshall <laughs> all of it. you don't even like pivot them you're like all right just like a little in this direction like like with your presentation and like maybe a tiny bit in this other direction with like an artist statement and then all of a sudden it like I should have thought of that myself but I didn't which is what we have you for <laughs> Well, oh my gosh, Dina, you're amazing for
3: artists too. Like you are incredible and Marshall too. Like you guys, this podcast
2: alone is so valuable. God, thank you. I can't believe we're still going. Like we're out of Marshall's living room, but we're still we're still doing this. Still doing
3: it. You guys, thank you so much for having me on. This was like so awesome.
1: Marina, this was great and such a nice asset for our listeners. So many great tips, and hopefully we can Bring, bring some your way so you can tweak them in the right ways and they'll they'll have oh. things on the Lower East Side, so.
3: <laughs> yeah, you know, Lower East Side, yeah. the Hamptons, the use. No.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you for listening. And I hope you got some good painting done while we entertain you with our amazing guest. If you like what you're hearing, follow and subscribe to our podcast, if you haven't done so yet. And if you're so inclined, rate us, whether you love or hate us. We love hearing all the different opinions and appreciate the feedback. You can reach out to us at artgrindpodcast at gmail.com or DM us on IG at artgrindpodcast. You faithful listeners have the power to help us grow. So please spread the word. It's free and you'll feel good about it. So until next time, stay on the grind while we fill your mind.